will be in chapter 8 of uh, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life for some time. And it's the chapter on meditation. So he is... Uh, and remember, out of 10 chapters, the last one is dedication. So there's not uh, nine chapters on practice. This is the eighth. So it's, he's talking about something that's more advanced, okay? And uh, as I've explained before, when he is talking about meditation, he's going to deal with what with our distractions. Yeah? And so one of the primary distractions we have is attachment. Yippee. Yeah. So we've talked about attachment to, um, to possessions, some, and we've talked about attachment to reputation. And that one is really murderous, actually, attachment to reputation, because we don't know what a reputation is, first of all. And even when it seems like we have a good one, we don't know if we really do. Yeah. And who is it, you know, and where do we find that good reputation? Is it in our mind? Is it in somebody else's mind? You know, like if you're going to look and check if you have a good reputation, what do you do? I mean, do you, do you do polls, national polls, popularity contest? Yeah. I remember high school, you know, getting voted for different class officers. Yeah. Is that how you get your self-esteem? Um, you know, what, what does it mean to have a good reputation? And, and who gives it to us and who doesn't give it to us? And where are we going to find it? And how do, how do we find out if we have it? Okay. Yeah. So do we send around polls or what? You know what I did in sixth grade? True confession. In sixth grade, I think maybe a number of you did this in sixth grade. Um, every week we made up a list of everybody in the class, ranking them according to how we like them. Yeah, did, did you do that? Oh, oh you guys... You didn't finish sixth grade properly. <laughs> really, this is a fundamental practice in my school in sixth grade. You know, and every week you did this, and then you compared lists to see who liked you and who didn't like you. And it changed every week, of course. But then you had your list to show them, you know, if you liked them or didn't like them that week. Real worthwhile use of our human intelligence. Yeah? Both on spending our time writing it and spending our time being curious about what other people's uh, list was and where we ranked on it. Yeah? And uh, we somehow continue that into adulthood, don't we? we? We don't make lists in the same way. Yeah. Well, at least we don't write them down. But, uh, you know, we spend so much time on that. And for what purpose? Yeah. I mean, it's just thoughts about other people 
or other people's thoughts about us. And the thoughts are like, you know, come and go, come and go. Why do we hang on to them? Okay, so we talked about, you know, what's the use of being attached to those things? And then he got into, Shanti Dever, our author, got into one of our primary attachments to the body. Yeah, and within the body, specifically sexual attachment. But he also, in this section, that's the section we're on now, goes into just attachment even to our own body, you know, and really looking at what the body is. Our own body, others' bodies, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, And he goes into quite graphic detail. And we've been on this section for a number of weeks, and he keeps going at it. Have you noticed that? It's like every time you think, okay, he's talked about the foulness of the body enough. I got it. Let's talk about something else. He goes on and on and on. Why? Because we are very dense. <laughs> yeah, we are very, very dense. And, um, you know, just this whole thing of the, I mean, n- the first of all, the innate part of just, you know, cherishing the body and it's me and, you know, I got to hang on to it and it's, and it's wonderful and useful and it gives me so much pleasure, at least when it's not giving me pain, it does, you know. Um, and I get status from my body, and my, how athletic I am, how good looking I am, this and that. And then, of course, that all goes away. But... Um, you know, so so attached to this body, our body, and then attachment to other people's bodies, okay? And so his purpose in talking about this is not, repeat, not to make us hate our body, okay? Yeah, hating the body, again, is not very realistic, yeah? It's designed to help us see accurately what the body is, okay, in the context of it being a distraction when we want to work with our mind, okay? In the context, another context, in the context of being a a good basis for Dharma practice, a human body like this is praised, Okay, why? Because with a human body, then we have human intelligence, hopefully, and uh, and that human intelligence is quite precious in terms of practicing the Dharma. You know, our kitties don't have it, the grasshoppers, the stink bugs, the deer, you know, uh, none of those. They don't have that kind of intelligence and ability to practice. So in that regard, we praise the human body in the context of being an object of attachment. Then we see that its very nature is foul 
and there's nothing there to be attached to. So it's very important to discern these two different ways of looking at the body and not to get them confused and not to go into something from maybe the religion you grew up in saying the body is sinful and it's evil and it's, you know, you should torture it and uh, what it with this, what is it, the hair... Whip it with a what? What the Catholic monastics used to do? Yeah, some kind of hair whip flagellation. Yeah, yeah. You know, is that no? That's not what Shanti Deva is saying at all. That's not recommended in Buddhism at all. You know, being thinking that being an ascetic and torturing our body is the path to awakening and it's the way to get rid of attachment to the body, that is not an idea found in Buddhism. Okay, we have to be very clear. On the other hand, indulging the body also isn't, you know, found in the Dharma. Yeah? So it's to, to keep the body healthy, yeah, uh, to keep it clean, and to use it as a vehicle to practice without exaggerating it and saying, oh, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's the source of my happiness, and I want to be together hugging everybody else's body too. Okay? So it's to counter that kind of exaggeration. So you can see there's a lot to balance here, especially if we come into this with ideas about the body from the religion you grew up in. Okay? And, and so we have to really watch that. And not only the religion we grew up in, it could be the idea of the body from, that we got from our family or from our friends you know, when we're teenagers and, and so on. What we get from the press, because the media tells us what, about the body, and this whole thing, you know, back in the dinosaurs, um, with the body is beautiful and we should enjoy the body and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, okay? So we get it, message, you know, messages from the media too, and all this gets tumbled around in our own mind, very often we aren't aware of the conditioning. And so we just go along with it and think that way. So what Shantideva is doing here is asking us to look at that conditioning and really check if it's useful or not, if it's realistic or not, if it's beneficial or not. Okay? So not this, you know, body is beautiful kind of stuff. And it's not this body is sinful stuff either. Okay? So you got to watch your mind and keep it, keep it balanced here. Okay? Otherwise you get in this thing of... Uh, I remember... Um, you know, back at Copan when this was back in the 70s. And uh, uh, so the Western Sangha was sleeping in some old brick house there. The floor was, uh, 
was brick. It's, it's subsequently been torn down, I heard. Um, so there was one monk who, because uh, we didn't, you know, having a mattress, I mean, like the mattresses we have here, forget it. So if you were wealthy, you had a, a foam mattress that was about this thick. Yeah, the rest of us just had um, straw mattresses. So you would get a few of them and stack them up because otherwise the, it was really cold. So there was one monk who just had one straw mattress. Okay, he was going to be the tough ascetic one. And Lama Yeshe, uh, he would walk around and look in our rooms and see what was going on a lot. And he walked in and he he saw, you know, this one straw mat on on the, the cold brick floor. And he said, you know, do you think you're Milarepa? Kind of go get yourself a regular mattress and stop this ascetic trip. He really gave it to him. So, um, yeah. Okay, so let's start with visualizing the uh, the merit field, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Yeah, and their bodies made of light. So they're in the space in front of us, looking at us with acceptance and compassion. And ourselves surrounded by all sentient beings. And inside the heart of each of those sentient beings, every single one, is the wish to be happy and avoid pain. And that's what we center our life on, around every one of us. And so we know something very important about every other sentient being in that regard, that they're just like us. And so we imagine leading everybody in turning to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha for guidance.
and that's cultivate our motivation. And expand our mind from focusing just on me. You can just feel that when you sit here and say, I am here, then the concentration is on, you know, this person, this body sitting here. And then you think of all the other sentient beings and stretch your mind out to the moon, to the different planets, to different solar systems. And that really uh, releases that very tight focus on I, me, my, and mine. So let's have the motivation to work for the welfare of all these countless sentient beings and to develop our mind to become a Buddha's awakened mind in order to do so. And let that be our motivation for sharing the Dharma this morning. Okay. So, where we left off... He was pretty graphic. Yeah. So let's review it. Uh, So first he was talking about, um, you know, everything you have to go through to court somebody, you know, to get that person interested in you or in the case of ancient Indian society, to get the two families together so that they think you're a good match. Okay, and uh, and then start questioning, you know, oh, when there's the marriage ceremony, everything's so romantic, and the other person's so attractive, um, 
And if that's so, if that's really the nature of their face, why does it disturb your mind when the person is dead and the vultures are eating their rotting body? Yeah, he didn't pull any punches, does he? <laughs> Just, uh, and then saying that you pr- completely protected the other person's body. You didn't want other people to look at it because, you know, it was yours. There was a possessiveness. But then when it's being devoured by the the vultures, let alone other, not minding if other people look at it, you don't even want to look at it. So he's saying, I mean, look at the, these two different things, you know. Somebody's alive, and we go, oh, so beautiful. Then they're dead. Same body. Blah. You know, and it's even feel fearful. Okay, so since vultures and others are eating this pile of meat that I behold, why did I offer flower garlands, scan- sandalwood, and ornaments to that which is now the food of others. Yeah, I mean, would you would you come up into the decomposing body and offer flower garlands and ornaments and sandalwood and diamonds and pearls? If I am frightened by the skeletons I see even though they do not move. Why am I not frightened by walking corpses which are moved around by a few impulses? So if I'm scared by the corpses which don't move and they can't do anything to us because they don't move, why am I not scared by corpses that have a mind that move them? That makes them move. Doesn't that make them more dangerous? You know, why are we attracted to a moving corpse and not to a dead corpse? Although in the Vinaya, <laughs> yeah, one branch of the celibacy presents concerns. You know that. And that's because, uh, well, there were, there were six naughty monks, uh, who, and it's said that they did all these things that then uh, became the reasons why the Buddha created the pre- many of the precepts for the monks. And then there were six naughty nuns, too. Yeah. But, um, yeah, some of these, some of them, they were pretty weird. Yeah. Okay, then 48, this is where we left off. Although I am attached to it when it is covered with skin, why do I not desire it when it is uncovered? Since I have no need for it then, why copulate with it when it is covered? Okay, I'm attached to it when there's skin, because the skin hides everything in it. But if... You took the skin off. Yeah. Years ago, we were we were going through this, uh, and Venerable Jigme brought out um, one of her anatomy books, 
and I think Sundru had something or Jampel had something, and we were all looking at the pictures, you know, with the skin off and the diagram of the different muscular systems and and digestive system and so on. Gorgeous. Yeah, gorgeous. So, you know, if if somebody walked in the room looking like that, um, we would probably all scream or faint or throw up or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yet when it's covered with skin, we think it's beautiful and we're quite attached. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah, when you think of it. So why do I not desire it when it's uncovered? Yeah, and since I have no need for it when, it, when the skin's torn off and you just have the muscles and bones, why uh, copulate with it when it is covered with the skin? Because it's the same disgusting thing in both cases. 49, oh, this is a good one. Since both excrement and saliva arise solely from food, why do I dislike excrement and find joy in saliva? Yeah. Remember when you were 14 and talking with your friends about sex and, you know, it's like, oh, kissing is like drinking somebody's saliva. Yeah. And then later we thought, oh, kissing, that's kind of nice. And But Shantideva is bringing us back to what it was and the way we saw it when we, you know, were like 12 and 13, which was like, ugh. Okay. Why do I dislike excrement and find joy in saliva when they both are manufactured by the body and they are both made from food? Okay. So he's he's hitting us from all different angles here. 50, here's a different angle. Um, Cotton, too, is soft to the touch. But while I find no sexual delight in a pillow, I think that somebody else's body does not emit a putrid odor. Lustful one, you are confused as to what is unclean. Okay, so cotton, too, is soft to the touch. You know, you open uh, one of the bottles of, I don't know, some kind of vitamins, and there's some cotton in it, and you pull the cotton out, and it's soft to the touch. But you don't get turned on by that, do you? Yeah, that would be pretty disastrous if every time you touched a cotton ball you got turned on. Okay, so we find no sexual delight in a pillow, you know, whether the pillow's stuffed with cotton or some kind of, I don't know what they put in it now. What do they put in pillows? Yeah, some kind of something soft. Yeah, okay, but we find no delight, you know, in just like, like, oh, pillow, you're so wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So if cotton doesn't do it for us and a pillow doesn't do it for us, 
Yeah. Why do we think that somebody else's body, what, you know, because we're saying, oh, I like that other person's body because it's very soft and it's nice to embrace that. Okay, but if we don't want to embrace some cotton and we don't want to embrace a pillow, why do we want to embrace somebody else's body? Because we think that it doesn't emit a putrid odor. Okay, actually, what's cleaner? The cotton and the pillow. That, those are cleaner than the body. So he says, lustful one, you are confused as to what is unclean. Very true, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, what, what would it be if you had a person there and you just think that person's gorgeous? Then you have a mannequin made of soft cotton standing next to them. Yeah, the mannequin is not going to do it for you. You know, we want the real smelly, <laughs> the real smelly thing that pees and poops and emits all these other stuff. Okay. Thinking that they cannot sleep with this cotton, although it is soft to the touch, Confused, negative, and lustful people become angry towards it instead. Okay. <laughs> so the cotton is soft. Yeah. But, you know, it, it doesn't get you all turned on like you want to be. Yeah. And so you get angry at it. You know, you're just a, a cotton mannequin. You're just a cotton pillow. And why is that? Because we want something from it. You know, our lustful mind wants some pleasure for it that it's not providing. So we get angry. If I am not attached to what is unclean, then why do I copulate with the lower parts of others' bodies, which are merely cages of bones tied together with muscles and tendons, plastered over with the mud of flesh. Okay, this is where it's really helpful to go to a, um, now I can't think of the word again, an autopsy. Yeah, it's really helpful to do that because... um, yeah, you see exactly what it is. And I, I'll tell you a little bit about the autopsy that, that I went to in, um, in Thailand. Uh, last week I said I'd, I'd be happy to show people pictures. Nobody has asked to see them. <laughs> um, okay, so the master kindly arranged this because this is a practice in, in Theravada Buddhism. And, and also, you know, could be in our, in our tradition, too. It's useful. Um, so the, I was there, me, and then I, uh, there was one Singaporean woman traveling with me. And then there were maybe three or four monks. And we, you know, drove down to the hospital. And on the way there, one of the, the four, uh, I think all the monks were foreign monks, um, like us, Inji monks. And... 
uh, they they were a little bit concerned that Wheeling and I might be horrified uh, f- during the um, the dissection, and that we might faint. Yeah, uh, why did they think that? Well, not only because we're women, but because one of the monks fainted <laughs> in a previous autopsy. And if he could faint, then these women are just going to, you know, they have, they're just going to fall over. And we Ling and I looked at him and said, you know, we've been helping our mothers in kitchens where, you know, we're hand, you handle meat and you handle chicken flesh and you handle all sorts of, you know, animal flesh, which looks equally as disgusting as human flesh, except people like it cooked and, and like, it, like to eat it. Yeah. And so we said, don't worry about us fainting. You know, worry about yourselves, guys. Um, but then when we... <laughs> so cute. He really meant well. He was so concerned, you know. We're so dainty. We're going to faint. <laughs> um, okay, so we, uh, so we get there. And the man had drowned in a canal in the, um, like the previous day or two. So his, he was lying on his back. Or the body was lying on its back. Okay. And above the body is, you know, in supermarkets, the scales that you have with the round bowls, and you put your apples in to weigh how many. So there's one of those scales hanging above the body, okay? And then uh, the guy takes the, the, his, you know, his, all his tools, and he puts them on the guy's belly, okay? Yeah, so you're getting dissected. All the tools are on your belly and your thighs. And the first thing he did was he, he had one thing, uh, kind of like Venerable Losang has in the in the shop, something you know that goes round and round really fast and it cuts, and so he um, he cut across here, yeah, and just took the top of the head off, okay, and then he reached in and he pulled out the brain and he put the brain in the in the scale, yeah, because you have to weigh the brain. Okay, and he marks that down and, and then puts, puts the brain somewhere down there. And then he, he starts, um, you know, then he reaches down and he pulls out the tongue and the esophagus. That was really... And, and puts that in the scale, weighs that, marks that down, puts the tongue in the esophagus over there. Then he uh, takes a knife and he cuts from here all the way down, okay, opens it up, you know, takes the ribs and, and you know, cracks, cracks it by the sternum so he could open it up. And then he starts taking out, you know, the heart and the stomach and the uh, pancreas and, and the kidneys and the small intestine, the big intestine, weighing all of them, looking at them, you know, and and after weighing each one, putting it over here, weighing, putting it over here, you know. 
and, uh, you know, and everything else that's in there, okay? And, uh, you know, there may be food in the stomach, there's, you know, poop in the digestive system, and so that all gets, you know, taken out and weighed. And then uh, after he did all that and inspected all the parts of the body, he's got to uh, put it all back together again. Well, you would think the least he could do was put everything where it was before he took it apart. No, he just takes a hands full of whatever it internal organs are there and puts it in so the heart and the brain and your brain gets put down here your heart gets put in here everything just gets piled in plus newspaper because you know sometimes when he had put the things in the scale he had to put newspaper on the bottom you know to because blood was getting all over the place okay and the news so all the organs, all the newspaper, everything getting stuffed in. Yeah, it doesn't matter where it goes. Stitch it up. Yeah. And then, you know, similarly, stuff stuff back in the thing. Take the, you know, the kapala. <laughs> yeah. The, and stick it back on and then sew this up. You know, and then, uh, you know, put the, the person, you know, before the body's just all over like this, put the person in, in, in a nice position, okay, because the family's got to see it. Okay. Yeah. So, fortunately, none of the monks fainted. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But it was really, uh, it was really something. And what, what was impressive was not just what you saw, yeah, but the way the body was handled was just, you know, it's like he was taking apart some electronic device. You know, you unscrew this and unscrew that, and put it over here and take that out and take this out and do the rewires and except. In an electronic device, they put things back where they belong. They don't just stuff it in. But, you know, to see that, that, you know, it it was just some physical object that, you know, could get taken apart and put back together again. And it doesn't hurt the other person. At first, when, you know, when you see the body there, when he starts to cut, you think, oh, he's going to hurt. And then you realize, no, there's nobody there. There's absolutely nobody there. The, the body doesn't feel anything. Yeah, this guy's mind is who knows where in what realm at that moment. Yeah, but that body that was the basis of so much of his focus and attention for so many years is now just getting disassembled and weighed and stuffed back together again and his consciousness is somewhere else yeah so quite yeah very 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 useful for practice because then you look and you say, well, that's not just the object, the body of somebody I'm attracted to, but that's my own body. 
you know. And someday somebody could do that with my own body. You know, my body? You're going to slice it here and throw the, the top of the head there and throw my brain there and, you know, and put my liver over here and, and weigh it? You know, you're going to weigh my intestines and, and then you're going to mush it all together and stuff it back in and sew it up so it looks nice and put my robes on top of it. You know, it's like, what? This is crazy. You know, when you think of the attachment to the body. And this was, um, so this was, of course, after the I ordained. But before I ordained, I was very attached to my hair. I had spent years growing my hair out. And it was very, very beautiful hair, and you know, that, okay. And I was so attached to it. And what got me to cut it was imagining my body lying out there at a funeral. You know, who knows? I, I'm in some other realm, experiencing who knows what nothing having to do with that body. And yet people are walking by looking and saying, oh, she has such beautiful hair. You know, and it's like the thought of this beautiful hair on a corpse. It's like, how can I be attached to my hair? This is totally ridiculous. Yeah. So that gave me the courage to cut it off. And then my precious hair, yeah, that I had cut off with so much renunciation. Yeah, when I, uh, I, I cut it, yeah, when I was at Copan, and I put some of it, not all of it, but some of it on the altar. And, you know, because it was my sincere offering to the Buddha of, you know, getting rid of my attachment. And my roommate came in and saw it and said, who put their hair on the altar? <laughs> you know, my beautiful hair that I had spent years growing out. Okay, so it was very good. Very good, yeah. <laughs> when I walked in the meditation uh, hall, because the first time I cut it, I didn't shave it. I just cut it short, you know. But I walked in, and my husband was also at the course, and he saw me, and <laughs> it was like, what in the world? <laughs> okay. I myself, okay, so it's not only others' uh, bodies which are tied together with muscles plastered over with the mud of flesh, but 53, I myself contain many unclean things which I constantly have to experience. So why, because of an obsession for uncleanliness, do I desire other bags of filth? Okay, so usually here, 
your, the teacher would describe everything that comes out of this body and everything we have to do to keep it clean. Okay, so all the openings of the eye, of the body. So you start with your eyes, and you have the little white stuff, the sleeve. You know. Okay, that's not too bad. Then you go to your ears and the earwax. Not so nice. Then you get to your nose. Oh, my God. What comes out of our nose? Especially after you've been sick. And, you know, it's green. (laughs) Or sometimes it has blood in it. Or it has little particles of who knows what in it. Or it's dirty because you've been breathing, you know, dirt. Yeah. So the, the... you know, the mucus is just gooey and disgusting, you know? Then our mouth. What comes out of our mouth? Okay, well, con- you know, contrary to the commercials, which say that they will definitely stop the bad breath, bad breath is endemic to the mouth, isn't it? Yeah? Okay. So even we're not eating the bad breath, then we eat, yeah. When, when the food is in the plate, it looks, we say the food is clean and it's very beautiful. As soon as we put it in our mouth, the food becomes dirty, doesn't it? Yeah, in the plate, it's clean. In our mouth, it becomes dirty. We chew it up. If we took that out and put that back on the plate and passed the plate to our friend, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not, they're not going to scoop it up. Yeah. This is, is before in cultures that don't have baby food. Yeah. This is how they feed their infants. The mother, you know, chews the food a little bit and takes it out and then puts it in the baby's mouth. Yeah. But here, you can see that the body, just going inside the body, makes the food dirty. Okay. Then we keep going down the body. You get to the armpits. So fragrant. Yeah. So we have to wash our face. We have to clean our ears. Even though they say don't put anything bigger than your elbow in your ear, we all use Q-tips to clean our ears out. Yeah, then we use tissue to clean our nose, or we, or we do, what are those things called? The, neti yeah, neti pot. You know, and some people use their own pee. They put the pee in the neti pot, and then... Really, this is how you're supposed to do it. Nowadays, people use water, filtered water. But really, this, this is the way it's normally done. You put the pee in, you know, and then you do this in here, and it goes into your sinuses, and then it comes out here. That's, that's to clean the nose, okay? And then you do it this way, and it comes out here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you clean your nose, and then you clean your mouth. You know, you have to brush your teeth and use mouthwash. And, 
and then you know have something make your teeth whiter you know so they look good and everything like that okay you know then you get to your armpits and then you take out that stinky smelly deodorant you know which is for, forbidden in the monastery <laughs> but most of it is it stinks doesn't it I mean, we were getting cans of right guard to, so that the, the wasps didn't make nests, you know, around the building. And it worked. I mean, even the wasps didn't like it. But human beings buy that stuff and, and think they smell good. Yeah? So you have to use that. Okay. So, and then, you know, there's sweat coming from the rest of the body, too. Yeah. Then you get down to the lower orifices. Oh, goodness. Isn't what comes out of there fantastic? Okay. You get pee, you get blood, you get poo. Yeah. Big mess. Yeah. And And every day you get the pee and the poo. And several times a day, the pee and the pee, you know... If you've been in another culture that doesn't have flush toilets and the pee builds up, it's pretty stinky, yeah? And let alone if it's the pee and the poo mixed together, you know, and nobody cleans it, it's, yeah. Um, So we have to do a lot of cleaning of our body and a lot of cleaning of the whatever we use where we place our stuff. Okay. And the, and then, you know, I mean the rest of the body too. And the uh, the soles of our feet smell. Yeah. The smell of feet, isn't that so fragrant? Yeah. Rivals sandalwood. <laughs> the smell of somebody's feet. Yeah. And and this is, you know, And what they say is that everything that comes out of the body, out of every orifice, we consider dirty and it's smelly and we want to clean it away. True or not true? It's true, isn't it? Yeah. So why are we attracted to somebody else's factory of, you know, earwax and vomit and everything else and to our own factory of earwax vomit perspiration everything else yeah that's what he's asking us so why because of an obsession for uncleanliness do i desire other bags of filth and why am i so attached to my own bag of filth You know, he's, he's really quite graphic because you think, you know, if you, you love somebody and you thought they were so incredibly good looking, okay, and, and they died, you know, would you carry their body around with you saying, you know, this is the person I love who was so good looking and... Even if you could shrink it so it wasn't so heavy, you know, would you carry it around with you? 
I don't think so. Okay, so then, verse 54, the first line, okay, here's the rebuttal to what Shantideva is saying. But it is the flesh that I enjoy. Okay, so before it was the softness of the cotton, and he refuted that. So now, you know, the mind is saying, it's the flesh that I enjoy. And Shantideva replies, if this is what I wish to touch and behold, why do I not desire it in its natural state, devoid of any mind? So if you really think, you know, it's the flesh, you know, who cares about their mind? They are just a sexual object, that's all, for the purpose of giving me pleasure. You know, if that's all that person is and why I crave them, then why don't I desire their body in its natural state, free of the mind? Yeah devoid of the mind. And wouldn't that be easier? Then you don't have another person talking back to you and complaining. And I don't like the way you touch me here and please touch me more there and do this and do that. And I'm tired and go away and, <laughs> you know? So he's asking us some good questions to really think about. You know, if your mind says, well, forget the mind. It's just somebody's body that I crave. Well, look at that. What are you craving? 55, furthermore, and okay, now the, here, this verse is, somebody says, okay, okay, yeah, it's, it's, I can't just say it's the body that I crave. It's the person's mind. They have such a good mind. They are so brilliant. They are so sensitive. They are such a good listener. They are so understanding. Yeah, they're just fantastic. And the, their mind is great. So Shanti Deva says, Furthermore, any mind that I may desire is unable to be touched or beheld. And whatever I am able to touch will not be mental. So why indulge in this meaningless copulation? Okay, so if I say, oh, but I'm in love with their mind. Well, what do you, you can't hold their mind. You can't touch their mind. Yeah, and anything that you can touch is not going to be their mind. It's going to be their poo factory. Okay. So why indulge in this meaningless copulation? 56, it is not so strange that I do not understand the bodies of others to be unclean, of un, an unclean nature. But it is indeed strange that I do not understand my very own body to be by nature unclean. Okay, so, okay, okay, it, it's maybe... You know, it's not so strange that you don't understand other people's bodies are unclean, you know, because they shower and they decorate themselves and put on deodorant and all sorts of anti-smell whatever stuff before they come out, yeah, of the room. You know, unless you live with them and you see them when they first wake up and smell them when they first wake up. 
Okay. Um, so it's not so strange that, you know, I have to really think about somebody else's body as unclean. But I live inside my own body. Why don't I understand that at least about my own body? Yeah, that's what he's saying. So it's very strange that I do not understand my very own body to be by nature unclean. Okay. Now here when he says it, by nature, it is by nature unclean. That means that the very nature of the body no matter what you do to it, is still going to be unclean. There's no way to cleanse this body or purify this flesh and blood body to make it so that it is something pure and clean. It's always going to be smelly. It's always going to have smelly stuff, gooey stuff coming out of it no matter what we do to it, yeah? It doesn't matter what we do to it. It's nature is always going to be the same because it it's, is unclean. It is foul by nature, okay? So there's no uh, external thing that made the body unclean, yeah? It's not like, you know, okay, we, we, uh, we get dirt on us. We can wash that off. Yeah, but the very body itself and what it produces, yeah, there's no way to get rid of that and still have a body. And that's just the nature of this kind of body that we took under the influence of afflictions and karma. Yeah, we wanted this kind of body because, you know, we take refuge in it. It's who I am. It gives me an identity. Yeah. So 57, having forsaken the young lotus flower, unfolded by beams of sunlight, free from cloud. So he gives us this beautiful image, you know. Why, with a mind craving for what is unclean, do I revel in a cage of filth? So you could look. I mean, he's, he's not saying that the lotus flower is the epitome of beauty, okay? But at least you look at a lotus flower, you know, or any flower that is just blooming, and it's pretty, yeah? Um, especially the beams of sunlight hit it or... You know, sometimes you can, the sunlight accentuates the color or uh, the petals of the flower are transparent, are translucent and the light shines through and it's very pretty. Um, but, you know, we may look at the flower, but, you know, not for so long and we're certainly not going to have daydreams about it, okay? Uh but why, with a mind of craving for what is unclean, do I revel in a cage of filth? That is the opposite of this beautiful lotus flower uh, that I want to possess and hold, and that's mine, and nobody else can touch it or look at it or do anything with it. It's mine. Yeah. So, you know, over the weekend, we... we 
when we were talking about my and mine and how you don't possess other people. Yeah. Uh, our mind can really get in that thing of, you know, as soon as you have a certain relationship, they are my this, that, or the other thing. They're not yours. You cannot look at them. You cannot touch them. You cannot flirt with them. Okay. If you do that, yeah. And so, and then it's, it's strange. If somebody flirts with your partner, do you get mad at your partner or do you get mad at the person who's flirting with them? Who do you get mad at? Who do you get jealous of? Where's the jealousy? Is it for your partner or is it for the person that's flirting? Okay. Who says it's the person that's flirting? Who says it's the partner? Yeah. It can go either way. And you see, sometimes, you know, what do couples fight about? And they go to a party together, and somebody is flirting with their spouse or partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever it is. Okay? And so some people get mad at the person who's flirting. They're jealous of, of that person who's flirting. Yeah? Because you, you know, I possess this person. You cannot look at them that way. Okay. Other people get angry at their partner and say, you know, did you know that guy was flirting with you? Did you know this? What were you thinking? Why were you looking at him this way or looking at her this way? Yeah? And, and get mad at their partner for being the object that was attracting somebody else's attention. Yeah. So if you watch in relationships, it could go either way where the jealousy goes. Yeah. Uh, because some, some people, you know, domestic violence, why often are women killed by a domestic partner? Because the man does, want, does not want to share her with other somebody else. So they will often kill her and kill the guy who's, who's flirting or who's also sleeping with her. Yeah, they'll do both. Yeah, so much confusion, huh? So much pain. Okay, 58. Since I do not wish to touch a place that is smeared with excrement, then why do I wish to touch the body from which that excrement arose? Good question. You walk into uh, somebody's room and there's excrement spit, you know, uh, kind of on uh, their desk and maybe on the floor. You know, maybe they had diarrhea or something. And the whole floor, I mean, this happens. This happens. And the whole floor, you can tell exactly where they walk because there's a trail of diarrhea. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we don't want to go near it. We don't want to touch it. Even it's on the floor. Imagine it's on the desk or something. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't even wish to touch that. Then why do we wish to touch the body that made it? Yeah. As if you could take the diarrhea, stuff it back into the body, and then that person's body is still so attractive, even though the diarrhea is stuffed back inside of it. Fifty-nine, if I am not attached to what is unclean, why do I copulate with the lower parts of others' bodies? which arise from the unclean field of a womb and are produced by the seeds within it. Okay, so it's not just the body that's unclean, and it's not just what comes forth from the body that's unclean, but where the body came from is actually unclean. Okay, so, you you know, here's... Because we look at it, when a baby is born, everybody's so happy, you know. Oh, this new life, this baby is born. There's hope for the universe. Actually, it's one other sentient being being born in samsara, you know. With, you know, a human life. We don't know if it's a precious human life or not, but at least it's not an animal life. But, you know, we think, oh... But what is, where's that baby coming from? Okay, it's coming from inside the womb, inside the body, yeah? Now, the, the womb is like every other organ, you know, blood vessels and, you know, it's a muscle and inside blood vessels and, and when the woman's pregnant, then you have the, um, what do you call it? Placenta. Yeah, oh, that one's really good, too. That one looks like liver, doesn't it? Kind of, you know, something, but it's solid. It's solid. Some people eat the placenta. Yeah? The baby comes out, the placenta comes out, and then some people say it's auspicious to eat the placenta. Okay? So, you know, the womb is not clean, yeah, the sperm and egg that join together to form the body are not clean. Yeah. So, um, you know, why do I copulate with the lower parts of others' bodies which arise from the unclean field of a womb and are produced by the seeds within it? So it goes for both you know, what the men contribute and what the women contribute. Of course, society puts more of the filth on the woman because, you know, of menstruation. But in fact, it's, it's you know, for both, both parties. Yeah. I mean, if there were a glass full of sperm, would you say, oh, that looks delicious? I don't think so. Sorry, guys. Um, okay, 60. I have no wish for a small, dirty maggot which has come from a pile of filth. Have you ever seen maggots in filth? Yeah. 
So why do I desire this body, which by nature is grossly unclean, for it too was produced by filth? So the maggot, you know, produced from the filth, eats the filth, the body also. You know, when we're in our mother's womb, what, what are we taking in? You know, her blood is circulating through our body, and that's how we're getting nutrition. Yeah. Okay, so why do I desire this body, which by nature is grossly unclean, for it too was produced by filth? And then 61, not only do I not disparage the uncleanliness of my own body, but because of, of an obsession for what is unclean, I desire other bags of filth as well. He's not letting up. Yeah. But it is true, you know, we don't see the uncleanliness of our own body. Yeah, but because we're obsessed with what's unclean, we even want other bodies of filth, other bags of filth. Because he's saying here, you know, if you look at it, it is a bag of filth. So, you know, when you're looking around at people here, you know, you, don't, you guys don't look really like bags of filth, you know, because um, you have skin over you and you have... Uh, you know, you're moving and you smile and, you know, you have clothes covering you that are that are nice looking. You don't look like bags of filth. But, you know, what what are these bodies really, you know, all sitting here? Okay. So why do, why do we desire them? 62, even attractive things such as savory foods, cooked rice and vegetables, chocolate chip mint, ice cream, chocolate chip cookies, um, uh, uh, venerable bendes, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> spring rolls, all of those things, yeah make the ground dirty and unclean. So even though they're attractive when they're in a plate, if they spill on the ground, they make the ground unclean. Okay. And, uh, well, they don't just make on the ground un unclean when they're spilled on the ground, sorry. Okay, they make the ground unclean should they be spat out after being in the mouth. Okay, so they're, um, you know, these things are beautiful. I mean, we take food and we arrange it in such beautiful formations, don't we? With the colors and the shape and, and it looks so nice before the person gets to the, first person gets to the line and takes a spoon out of it. And then it doesn't look so nice, but it still looks good, you know. Okay, but... Again, we put it in our mouth, chew it a little bit, spit it out. Yeah, what made that beautiful food unclean when we spit it out? Our body. 
Yeah. Or not just chew it and spit it out, but you eat it and you vomit. Okay. Yeah, vomit, even more attractive than stuff that's spit out. You know, stuff that's spit out. You know, we don't, that's, you know, we don't like to look at it, but it's, it's better. But if somebody throws up in front of us, yeah, do you want to watch people throw up? You can watch them spit. That's not so nice, but we, we do. But, you know, you want to watch somebody throw up? There was a time some years ago, do you remember that, out in the forest? With, with Sundru, it started with Sundru. We were working in the forest, do you remember? We were working in the forest, and I don't know what happened with Sundru, but he had an upset stomach. And we were, um, uh, I think we had the chipper out there. Yeah, and he was putting things through the chipper, and then he just turned around. Bleh. Yeah. And then everybody started thinking, oh, you know, was it some kind of food that we all, you know, that was eaten? Then I don't know whether everybody had a stomach ache or whether this was just copycat or mine's copy, but everybody, you know, almost everybody started throwing up. Either throwing up there or we, we finally, after a few people threw up, we came back here. Then more people throw up, and people were, <laughs> you remember, and belching, you know. <laughs> John Bell and Sundra were having a belching contrast. They were standing out under those trees, belching and throwing up, and laughing in between it. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> the joy of living at a monastery. <laughs> For everybody who had all, all sorts of things that, you know, once you're in a monastery, you are above worldly concerns. Mm. No. <laughs> yeah. Who was here for that? Remembers? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was. <laughs> huh? Yeah. Yeah, it was really, it was really something. <laughs> okay. So, all the attractive food, make the ground dirty and unclean, should they be spat out after being in the mouth. Although such uncleanliness is obvious, if I still have doubt, Another word, Shanti Deva is saying, after explaining this to you in so many verses, in so many pages, if you still don't think the body's, you know, unclean and you have some doubt about it, then you should go to the cemeteries and look at the unclean bodies of others that have been thrown away there. Now, in America, that's a little bit different, difficult because everything is sanitized. You know, uh, no matter how badly somebody is injured, let's say in a car accident, you know, they fix them up at the, at the uh, funeral home. I love the way it's called a home. Yeah. 
well, I don't love it, but you know. Um, they make them look good. They put everything, the, all the pieces back together again. Even if somebody was in a horrific accident and the body torn apart, yeah, they, they put them back together so that they, uh, they look clean. Yeah? And that way we, we can look at them for a short time. We don't want to look too long. Okay? So you can have an open casket and people go by enough slowly to look and then look away. Okay. Um, but uh, in, in India, I mean, India is better now, but when I first went there in the 70s, you would see dead bodies in the train station. Yeah, or on the side of the road. People would die and, you know, they, they die, especially the, the poor people and the beggars. And, you know, they would just die and lie there until, you know, somebody, I don't know who would come and take the corpse away. Um, but in even times, I don't know how they, how they do cemeteries now in India, but in the olden times, what they did, they just took the bodies and, you know, there was one ground that was the charnel ground and you put the bodies there and then the dogs came and ate them and the vultures came and ate them. And that's where a, a, a large part of the cloth for making sangha ropes came from because it was very difficult to find cloth yeah, if you look, we have a lot of precepts about cloth and clothes and borrowing clothes and, you know, declaring our clothes and things like that. And it's because it was very difficult to get cloth. And the way the Buddha set it up was you were supposed to find bits of discarded cloth wherever you found them, wash them, dye them to something that looked like saffron color, yeah, and then stitch them together in patches to make the robes. And that was to remind us that we are renouncing samsaric delights and samsaric things, okay? And so the sangha often went to the charnel grounds and they would collect the cloth that uh, was wrapping the bodies because when somebody died, they they wouldn't put them in boxes with, with you know, nice brass handles, nice mahogany boxes, things that somebody could never afford while they were alive, but the people bought them when they're dead because they felt guilty. Okay, um, so you know they would just wrap the body in cloth throw it there and the sangha would go and take the cloth yeah or sometimes there would be bits of cloth on the the roadside just that was torn or ripped or whatever or other discarded cloth that you found in fields and they would gather that and then you know the reason that our robes are in patches is because you you didn't find uh, a big nice piece of cloth. You only found smaller pieces of cloth. And then they were stitched together. And uh, they were stitched together in this pattern because one day the Buddha was looking out over the rice fields. 
and was commenting about how um, pleasant it was to see the formation of the different rice uh, fields there, and so said that the, the robe should be stitched in that way. Yeah, so that's how the, the Sangha got, got their robes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so he, he's saying here, go to, a, go to a charnel down and check it out. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the animals would come, they would tear the cloth away, you know, they would start to eat the body. Okay, and then you had to pick up the cloth and come and wash it and make it the clothes that you, that you wore. Okay, so let's stop here. Uh, questions or comments for a few minutes? Did I do a good job of making you all feel disgusted? <laughs> if I didn't, then I'm not doing my job properly. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's just comical to, to see the... It's so clearly written in it, and we can see it. And then when we're attracted to someone, it just completely leaves to mind. Yeah. It's just the ignorance is very clear. Yeah. Yeah. You see it with your eyes. It's very, you can't deny it. And yet, how blind the mind becomes. And also, like, you know, um, what I feel is unclean on someone else. I don't see, like, you know, I don't want to touch anyone else's dirty tissues, but my dirty, dirty tissues, but my dirty tissues are okay. Yes. And that kind of thing where somehow because it's mine, yes. it's not so dirty or so disgusting. Yes. That's true, isn't it? We wouldn't touch somebody else's toilet paper, but we touch our own toilet paper. Yeah. It's not as dirty as other people's. Quite strange. Yeah? And having the five sense faculties as part of the desire realm enhances and enables this attachment too. If we only had, if we didn't have any eyes, or we didn't have any smell, or we didn't, we just had feet and a brain or something, we would not have maybe the same level of mm -hmm. desire. Yeah. So this five senses really contribute to this whole little facade. Right. For sure. And that's why there's so much focus um, in Vinaya about guarding the senses, not only for looking at other people's bodies, but looking at anything, because this, the, sense, the senses are what connect the, the object with the consciousness that then gives rise to craving and clinging and so on. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and we are just enamored with the senses. Our whole society, isn't it? Everything is about sense pleasure. Okay, let's dedicate. So when you do the mandala offering, you know, do the inner mandala offering where you think of the parts of your body becoming the mandala, which is then 
transformed into this beautiful environment that you offer to the Buddha and and say, may all sentient beings enjoy it. Yeah. So instead of clinging on to this stuff yourself, transform it and offer it, make it useful. <laughs> 